0: Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez.
1: Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket. Today, I have an outstanding guest. His name is John Healy. He's an editorial writer and a blogger at the Los Angeles Times- his focus is on the economy, monetary policy, regulatory issues, intellectual property, and of course, health care. And so I wanted to welcome him to the show. We're going to be spending some time discussing his area of expertise, which is policy, Affordable Care Act. And so before I dive into that further, I wanted to extend a warm welcome to John. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So John, what made you interested in, in focusing on the medical sector? Well,
0: part of it was because we lost our previous healthcare rider and California had just tried to do its own version of what Massachusetts had done. And it wasn't you know, a single payer, it was a universal access approach that Governor Schwarzenegger and a couple of the legislative leaders had struck a deal on, but they just couldn't pull it together. So that segued perfectly into the start of the Obama administration and the discussions there over how they might do that on a national level, and and when I started doing the interviews with people who were working on that, I realized that it wasn't, I couldn't imagine anything that would be more important to our readers. And I think that remains true.
1: Now, that's really interesting and how things sort of took turns and it went from Romney launching his over there and then kind of didn't even happen in California, right? Well, it came very close. They were within a few votes
0: because you did have a deal between a Republican governor and a couple of Democratic leaders in the assembly. You just didn't have the state Senate on board completely. And so it fell through at the last minute.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. It was so close, but it was there, but you decided this is a a big, important area to focus on. And and I've read some of your articles, very well written and very insightful. And so I'm excited to kind of shed some light on that with the listeners today. So what do you think, John, is is a hot topic that should be on every medical leader's agenda today.
0: Well, I think that there are two parts of that. One is how folk are going to be paid, how they're going to be reimbursed. And the other part of it is how many people are going to be able to participate in healthcare, both in terms of the ability of the system to afford providers and in terms of the ability of people to get care? It's funny, well, I, I mean, funny, not in the haha way, but it's striking to me that so much of the discussion this year hasn't been about the central structural problems. In healthcare, it's been about the way that we finance a small portion of the care that is delivered. That's the portion of the care delivered to people who are in the individual market, folks who are not covered by a big employer group plan or by a public plan. And within that subset, it's the people who are not subsidized under the ACA who have really felt The pain of the sharp premium increases. And so that's an honest to goodness problem. And it's kind of a mathematical problem or an actuarial problem. But all the debate in Washington has been over other things. And Mm -hmm. you just kind of hit your forehead periodically going, can we just look at what really is the issue and, and
1: try to solve that? So you're saying that the focus should be on the sliver of folks that are being impacted that are off the employer plans and off of public plans. They're the ones really feeling the weight of premium increases.
0: Yeah, I, I would actually broaden it a bit because I would take everybody in the individual market. What the ACA tried to do is they looked around and they said, okay, employer large group market is working fine. And since HIPAA, Those folks have had portability. They've had protection against pre-existing condition, rate hikes, things like that. I mean, all the things you'd want to have. Let's see if we can make that happen in the individual market. So the Affordable Care Act said, okay, let's pool everybody. We're going to require folks to have similar policies through these essential benefits. And we're creating one big pool. The mistake I think that the ACA made was instead of doing the pool regionally, it did it within states, areas by area. And you have real population density issues and provider density issues in a lot of states. And so what happened was you had adverse risk selection and premiums naturally went through the roof. So Republicans, some of the plans out there have looked at that part of the problem and said, okay, let's try the high risk pool approach, but this is very expensive. and The Senate bill actually had something like $185 billion over 10 years to subsidize all around this issue of high risk. But you kind of have to ask the question, how do we pay for those individuals? Who should pay for those individuals? Pre-ACA, it was kind of state by state. And some states said, all right, we're going to put that on the backs of our taxpayers. And some states said, no, we're not going to do anything about it. And we're going to kind of allow the insurance system to figure out how they want to spread those costs throughout their rate base. And you, what you ended up with was a lot of people who couldn't get coverage, then a lot of people who could get coverage, but not for the things they needed it for. And then a lot of people who could not afford coverage. And then there's some people who couldn't get coverage at all. So anyway, it wasn't a system that worked well. And, and that's one of the uh, sources of energy behind the ACA.
1: Yeah. And John, you, know, you, you mentioned, okay, the two areas are, how are these people getting paid And access. And so we're talking about access right now. And as we dive into this topic, I mean, what are your thoughts on how healthcare providers, insurance companies, other stakeholders like med device companies, how is this access or lack of access affecting the way that the economy is actually performing?
0: It's inefficient in the sense that under federal law, folk have to get care for urgent needs. So you end up paying for some of the needs of the people who are uninsured, but you don't go about their problems in an efficient way at all. So what you really want to do is bring everybody under some sort of coverage umbrella so that you can manage their care. And then you can say, okay, here's what you need. And ideally you, you have a lot more attention paid at the primary care level. Here's what you need to effectively stay healthy. And then once you've fallen out of that basket of lucky people who are healthy all the time and you have a chronic condition, okay, here's how we're going to manage that. And here are the devices that are going to work for you. Here are the medicines that are going to work for you. Here are the routines that you need to embrace. And then how do you have somebody stay on top of these patients so they actually follow up. I think that what providers will tell you is one of their big frustrations is is making sure people do what they're told to do. So that massive inefficiency, the Affordable Care Act tried to address first by bringing more people under the insurance coverage umbrella. And then second, by looking at how the payment system has incentives that aren't lined up the right way, that aren't in line with the incentives that we as payers have. We want to make sure that we come up with a way to incentivize everyone in the system to keep people healthy as opposed to incentivizing people in the system to treat illness. Right, It's a 180 degree shift and it's very difficult. And it's exceptionally
1: difficult when people are not insured. Yeah, John, no, that's such a great point. And this uh, fee-for-service versus fee-for-value has definitely been a big debate. And let's call out the elephant in the room, What's happening today? There's a lot of uncertainty, Obamacare, Trump Care. Can you give the listeners a little bit of insight into what's going on?
0: Well, as of this moment in early September, we are down to the last 3 weeks before the reconciliation bill that Republicans wanted to use to repeal and replace Obamacare mm-hmm. expires. When on September 30th of this year that bill goes away. So, there is one last push to do a bill that would repeal and replace. The bill is uh, sponsored by Senators Cassidy and Heller and Graham. It would be essentially a block granting of every bit of money that the federal governments give to states for Medicaid expansion and the Affordable Care Act subsidies. But it wouldn't simply say, okay, here's what you're getting today. You're going to keep getting that. What it would say is we're going to kind of hit the blender button and we're going to distribute the money in a little bit different way. So there'd be some states that are absolute winners under this and then a bunch of states that are losers. And over time, in order to save the federal government money, the bill would ratchet down on the amount that states could receive relative to their projected costs. Now that's essentially ending the guarantee that Medicaid has had that the federal government would always keep pace with the rise in healthcare costs. So the choice facing lawmakers is the same one that they had in late July when they decided they narrowly they did not want any of these options because ultimately they're going to have to decide whether they want to end the Medicaid guarantee and for states hand Medicaid uh, eligible people to do with less. Now, maybe the, the, there's an argument out there that you can do more with less money, you just have to do it more efficiently. There's all sorts of approaches to trying to come up with that equation, uh, the answer to that equation.
1: John, I saw an article out there, I think it was by uh, the Commonwealth Fund, that discussed the impact to safety net hospitals that this would have, just basically talking about how this would be a tremendously negative impact that could cost many, many jobs and uh, maybe even closure of hospitals. What are your thoughts on that? Anytime somebody says we need to roll back funding for an existing
0: program, you are going to have people make those projections because the math is pretty straightforward, right? If you have a certain amount today and you're barely scraping by, you look at your margin and you have less money with no diminution in demand over time, then you're going to run into problems. The central assumption animating the project, the, the proposed cuts in Medicaid is that one of the uh, things driving inefficiencies today is the set of regulations that the federal government puts on states. Now, if you just unleash them and let them do things how they see fit to do them, then magically you'll gain efficiencies and people will be able to do more with fewer dollars. But that's not entirely what they're planning on here. A lot of folk talk about, a lot of Republicans talk about needing to get Medicaid back to its core purpose, which is very poor families, poor pregnant women, poor disabled people. They think the Medicaid expansion under the ACA was harmful to sort of core societal interests because it took quote unquote able-bodied people and guaranteed them health care. Now, if you look at the the Medicaid expansion population, you're looking at a lot of people who are disabled. You're looking at a lot of people who are working and these are folk who couldn't afford care. Mm-hmm. So I have a tough time myself accepting the argument that there's something wrong with the Medicaid expansion, that it's somehow immoral or damaging to the fabric of society.
1: Yeah. You know what? I agree with you. And I think you can argue both sides of it. But when you're able to proactively care for people, the benefit that the Medicaid bill provided, it's definitely a plus. And so with the 20% of the economy being healthcare, I forget how many trillion, is it like $3 nowadays per year. It's something that uh, it's an engine that continues to hum, but it's uh, starting to be a little more inefficient. And so give me some of your thoughts, John, on something that you believe could be an area of focus for providers in order for them to prepare themselves for the changes that are coming. Well, you
0: know, there's lots of experimentation out there with different reimbursement methodologies. Under the Obama administration, they set a goal of trying to drive up in uh, Medicare and Medicaid to, I think, a majority of their providers, that sort of payment method, those sort of payment changes. And there's a lot of tension now over those because you have in today's Secretary of Health and Human Services, a doctor who believes that those sorts of things interfere with the doctor-patient relationship. When you hear a Republican say patient-centered care, that means something different than when a Democrat says patient-centered care. For a Republican, it means not having the government limit your ability to pay privately, to have an insurance policy that covers the complete network of doctors, to have doctors provide whatever sort of services at whatever billing they want to provide. Versus Democrats saying, well, it should be about outcomes. You should be focusing on whether the patient gets better. And that's how you want to tune the system. So two very different approaches to patient-centered care. But if I'm a doctor today and I'm thinking, what is it that I have to think about? What I would be focusing on, or a doctor, a pharma company, a uh, medical device manufacturer, it's all the same. I'd be thinking about, how do I show that what I do makes people better? How do I demonstrate that? Because ultimately, the problem in the healthcare system is escalating costs, costs that are going up faster than the economy is growing. That has to be reckoned with eventually. Somebody has to take that, uh, somebody has to get a handle on that eventually. And the way they're going to do that is, I think, is say, well, let's actually look at results. So then it falls to the providers to be able to measure and show what they're doing.
1: And time frame. I know that a lot of people talk about this and it's definitely the way to, to curb cost. I was in a meeting uh, one time, John, and it was a lot of he- healthcare providers and uh, they asked the question to the audience, hey, you know, how many of you in the audience, this was about a year ago, are focused on outcomes-based care, meaning like part of an ACO or just something like that related to value based care versus fee for service. So fee for service, raise your hands. And it was literally like ninety percent of the room <laughs> that raised their hand. And that was kind of an eye opener for me, you know, because there's a lot of rhetoric on the company side and also on just the out there in the in the news about value based care, but it seems like not many people are doing it.
0: Depends on what part of the country you're in though. In California, they've Managed care has been the dominant route for a lot of years, and recently the state put just about everybody in the state's version of Medicaid in a capitated system.
1: So, oh, is that right? Over in California. Yeah.
0: So yeah, if you're getting Medicaid in California, you have an HMO. So if you did that, if you asked that same question out here, I think you'd probably get a different response, although there's still a lot there, no question, there's still a lot of fee-for-service.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And I always wonder, like, when are we going to make the leap? I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But I, I always think, man, I mean, it seems kind of far. And and look, you're on the outcomes rocket, right? I mean, we're what we stand for is, is how do we improve patient outcomes. So I love to have value based care conversations. And I love to see them. I've seen many examples take place. I don't want to seem negative here. But what's the timeline for something like this to actually be the majority? Is it ever going to be there?
0: That's a good question. If you left the private sector to its own devices, you would have a pretty extended timeline. What the Obama administration tried to do was goose that by using Medicare and Medicaid to chart some Paths that worked, and, and they also had in the ACA a vast number of pilot projects that were aimed at just this sort of thing. Well, we don't have President Obama anymore. We have administration. Who, I mean, what's the latest thing they did? They said, you know, we don't like balanced billing. That was a stunner. But <laughs> I, there are plenty of doctors out mm. there who don't like balanced billing. I get that. When you think that the hope of the future is individualized care, precision medicine that's based on somebody's DNA, then you're gonna probably push back against the idea that there ought to be a common bucket for how we approach some of these major illnesses. But on the other hand, I am a big fan of book Mistreated by Dr. Robert Pearl from Kaiser. And he talks about how the absence of best practices around simple things like sepsis, and I don't mean simple as in easy to solve, but common things like sepsis leads to untold unnecessary deaths. And so The thinking behind stuff like balanced billing, just like the thinking behind a value-based approach to reimbursement is a lot of these problems have been worked out for the vast majority of patients. Can we not try to push the industry instead of thinking every patient is unique and therefore we have to start from zero with each one into a modality that says, okay, this person is most likely to fit into this bucket let's try that. Here are the best practices associated with that. And we're getting good outcomes from these practices in some huge majority percentage of the time. Yeah, that's not going to work with some illnesses, no question. I mean, right. things like geoblastoma or other complex cancers that are really individualized, you're not going to be able to do that.
1: But a hip replacement? Absolutely. Yeah, you could definitely do it with a hip replacement or you know some cardiac procedures, just the typical areas where they, I, I think have focused bundle payments? Absolutely. And there's going to be those outliers, like you said.
0: And that's why you're seeing not just government, but payers, big companies, insurers, CalPERS, the state of California public employee retirement system, which covers retiree benefits Mm -hmm. for hundreds of thousands of Californians. They went the bundle payments route on joint replacements and they worked out something with a couple of, of the big providers here and said, look, this is what we're going to pay for this. Are you in or not?
1: And I think there's going to be more of that as the time comes and the silver tsunami is upon us, and I think it's definitely going to be a, a, an area where we'd start seeing more of that.
0: Another thing that we're going to see more of, and this I don't know if, if this is encouraging to providers or discouraging, but here in Los Angeles, the county has started using Medicaid dollars to pay for housing for homeless people. And they did really? that because they found out through the data that people who are homeless end up consuming a ton more medical services than people who have a steady roof over their heads. Mm -hmm. So they thought, well, look, and Medicaid agreed that they could do this. Let's actually use some of these healthcare dollars preventatively to put people into housing. And when payers do more and more of that, then providers are going to have to say, I need to be part of that too. I need to find a way to be part of a payment system that rewards me when my people don't come
1: to see me. John, that's a really good point. And I feel like this is an example of how healthcare is actually more, you could influence it better outside of the hospital. In the hospital, that's sick care, right? Yep. Healthcare happens outside. And I think it's really smart that Medicare, I mean, in my opinion, I think it's smart that Medicare is making these approvals for them to be able to use it on housing. Agreed. Makes a lot of sense. So listen, I just looked at the time and we're running. I've really enjoyed this. Why don't we jump into our little section where we do the lightning round? You'll be able to recommend the book and then we'll have to conclude with some of your closing thoughts. But um, I've really enjoyed the time here today. I know for the listeners, probably been able to get a lot of good insights from you, John. So really appreciate you going into these things with us. Let's pretend you and I are building a leadership course on, on medicine. It's the 101 course of John Healy. And, <laughs> and so I'd like to write out the syllabus with you. Just get some brief answers to the following four questions. Ready? Okay. All right. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? To measure them. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Assuming that people will do the right thing for their own health. Love that one. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Deliver services that people actually want, not the ones that you think that they want. What is the one area of focus that should drive all else in the organization? Efficiency. And finally, what's the book you would recommend? I know you mentioned Mistreated. Mistreated. By Robert Pearl, yes. Yeah, I I think that's a fantastic book, but just for grins,
0: I'll I'll also recommend Change Agent by Daniel Suarez, a look at a future when we really are customizing DNA. It's fictional, but it's really fun.
1: That's a really good one. So uh, Change Agent. Daniel Suarez. Awesome. So Outcomes Rocket listeners, there you have it. Anything that we've discussed here today, you'll be able to find on outcomesrocket.com slash John Healy, and uh, all the news links, all the show notes, as well as the best place to get a hold of John, which we will share here right now. So, John, why don't you go ahead and share your parting words, as well as the best place where the listeners could get a hold of you.
0: I am a policy uh, wonk here at the LA Times. I'm in the opinion section. So I'm always looking for help understanding how Washington and state capitals interface with providers and whether they're doing the right thing for them or the wrong thing. So I'm interested in all that stuff. And the way to reach me is via email, J O N dot H
1: E A L E Y at LA times.com. John, super thankful that you spent time with us today. Looking forward to uh, just uh, continuing checking out what you're putting out there and just continuing to get insights from you. Thanks so much. Thank you.